Welcome to Fundraising Stories with Female Founders. I'm Julia Elliott-Brown, the founder and CEO of Enter the Arena. I'm a serial entrepreneur and an expert in raising investment and business growth. Our mission at Enter the Arena is to empower female founders to fly through pre-raise and investment and onto the exponential growth of their business with investment expertise and business coaching. Here we share the stories of inspirational female founders who've raised investment to inspire you to do the same. You'll hear their honest accounts of what it was really like to secure funding, the highs, the lows and the challenges they experienced on the journey. And along the way, we'll discuss top tips for how you can be successful too. Today I'm speaking to Anushi Desai, the founder of the award-winning snack brand Plant Pops. Now Plant Pops, if you haven't come across them yet, are a delicious range of plant-based snacks made from ancient grains and seeds from around the world. Um, Their first products to market are created from popped lotus seeds, which um, I've personally never tried. Uh, And I hear they're a bit like crisps meat popcorn, so really different and full of flavour. Now Anushi founded Plant Pops in 2019 and launched to consumers the following year. And she did this without having any previous experience in the food and drink industry, because her previous life, she was a management consultant at KPMG, so quite a leap. Um, The brand won Best Snacking Innovation at the 2019 World Food Innovation Awards. And they've also been shortlisted for a Great British Food Award, which is amazing. Now, 2020, Anushi raised £300,000 from angel investors to help her grow the brand to the next stage. She did that right in the middle of a pandemic. I'm sure there were plenty of challenges along the way. So let's meet Anushi and find out more about her fundraising story, the highs, the lows, the challenges and her top tips and advice. So welcome, Anushi. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. Lovely to see you. So, right, let's go back to the beginning. So, what on earth made you take the leap from what I imagine was probably a pretty safe, well-paid job as a management consultant with a strong progression path into being the founder of a food and drink startup? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's totally random and I kind of appreciate how random it is. Um, so it, I guess it happened kind of organically. So um used to work quite long hours, used to eat pretty unhealthily, worked in the city um and it was really only crisps and popcorn and it got boring pretty quickly especially when you're in the office you want something to kind of feel a bit exciting I actually grew up in India where pop lotus seeds are so common I would say then like a nuts crisp popcorn replacement all in the one you get you go to the cinema that's what they serve they don't serve popcorn so I've always kind of been really familiar with it and when my parents moved to the UK you'd you could still get the big bags in the Indian supermarket and make them at home so I started making them and taking them and taking them into work and people really were really intrigued. They were like, what is this? When I tried to explain it, it was quite hard, but when they tasted it, they really liked it. So I kind of thought, look, this kind of sort of has legs. Uh, my co-founder, Ash, is actually was actually a colleague of mine at the time. So um, he's part-time on Plant Pops. And we kind of said, let's just do it. Let's just see where it goes. And I guess it goes back to, yeah, my job was super safe, but yeah, it was super safe. So it was kind of time to do something else, I think as well. And yeah, it was very much do it now or never do it and always think about what was going to happen. So I just kind of said, let's take the leap. Wow. So did you have, at that point, did you think, oh, this is just going to be a side hustle? Or did you think, 
no, we can make this into something really huge. Yeah, so it was a side hustle for a little bit, definitely off the side of my desk. Um, I, I would like really recommend that to anyone just because it allows you to test your proposition and really validate the market. It got to the point where I really couldn't do it as a side hustle anymore. Uh, my notice period was so long as well. So it was like January 1st, 2019, I just handed in my notice just because I knew it'd be like months before I could leave anyway. Um, I think it was slightly like an impulsive decision, but I did it. And then I knew that if I did that, I would commit to it full time because at some point I wanted to grow the brand. Uh, we want to grow our products. We want to grow our distribution. That That is what we want to do with this product. So yeah, it just kind of had to be done as a full-time role at some point. So yeah. So you sort of took the leap off the cliff, hoping that the parachute would open. Which is yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So at the start, I mean, you said it became impossible to do it as a side hustle. So what were the, what things did you have to do to get the business off the ground? And where did you have to, where did you have to spend money? Yeah, so because it's a product we our, our biggest cash flow tie up really goes into making the product so that's always a big thing for us we have to pay up front and then we try and earn it back through selling the product um so the biggest thing i think was finding a supplier that took forever that took a really really long time um there's very strict accreditations we needed we actually still produce in india that's really important to our product we could have produced it here but actually they've been eating it for centuries there. So it felt a bit random to then not work with people who really, really know about the snack. Um, so a lot of cash, I think, just goes into getting the product, getting packaging made. Um, also, because when we order things, we have to order in huge quantities and then just store them, stock them. So when we order packaging, we don't order like 10,000 bags. We have to order 500 kilos, one ton. And when you think about how light a bag is, it's, you get hundreds of thousands in there. So yeah, that's probably where kind of we needed funds for pretty imminently when we started. Yeah, I just got visions of like huge warehouses full of all your snacks. What a leap of faith though, to kind of make that commitment to buy all that product and then thinking, wow, we're going to have to sell this now. Yeah, it was really scary also because um, our product arrived off of a ship one day before our first trade show it was so stressful it arrived the day before ash and i got in his car we drove to elephant and castle where we'd managed to find someone to take like a couple of pallets stuffed the car there was like and it was like oh we can't fit this box doesn't matter it'll fit in the glove compartment just just stick the bags in there and it was just overflowing it was like totally chaotic at the beginning amazing and so what so where do you where did you sell them? What's your kind of distribution strategy? Yeah, so it's kind of um, changed quite a lot just as we learned about the industry. And I think I'll be pretty open. When we started, we knew nothing about the food industry. We didn't really understand the margins. And it was really speaking to people that worked in this industry, like absorbing any kind of knowledge we could get that allowed us to kind of play the game a little. Whereas at the beginning it was kind of like, oh, we've made some sacks, do you wanna try them? And when I look back, I just kind of think, what were we doing? So our strategy at the beginning, I would say wasn't really a strategy. We had these snacks and we were just trying to sell them. That was basically it. And I guess that still kind of is our strategy, but it's a bit more honed now. So we sell quite a lot online. Um, especially during the pandemic, we launched onto Amazon and that's been fantastic for us. Um, we sell through an online store, but really we work on with lots of wholesalers. So they get us to lots of independent stores and things like that, that we wouldn't be able to service directly. We used to supply to a lot of offices. Um, I say used to because 
of 2019 and what happened, but hopefully we'll pick that up again. And we've also, um, we're also exporting. So there's lots of different strands now. Um, and that's kind of where we find that the money goes because we have to buy the product up front. And when you're working across so many different strands, it's how much product do you buy? How do you get it in and things like that. Amazing. So in terms of kind of those, that initial start where you had to go out and manufacture and buy those large quantities of products, packaging, et cetera, is that something you funded yourself at the start? Yeah, so we were totally self-funded at the start. And um, it was very kind of, like, I would say cheap and cheerful was our vibe. Like, if you looked at our kind of the boxes that we sent out, oh, it was so cheap and cheerful, very startup, but really glad we went through it. Um, we also really had to sell the story of what we were trying to build to the supplier because they really had to take a chance on us as well. And we could we had to say, look, we can't order your minimum run at the moment to do this product. Like just do some samples for us. And we paid slightly over, over the odds, but like you would if you order a lower quantity, but yeah, that's um, totally self-funded. So we were really, really conscious of where everything was going. Yeah, okay. And so how far did that get you? I mean, did you kind of basically raid all your savings completely before you went to the next phase? Yeah, basically. And one of our biggest, biggest purchase, apart from product, um, we booked to stand at a trade show and we kind of said, this is a stake in the ground. If we book this, we have to have product. We have to have packaging. Everything has to be ready for this. And that was like the best thing we could have done because it was in March, 2019. We had our first run, et cetera. That was all done. We then actually had to take a bit of a break from um, selling because our supply chain was just up and down. We just couldn't get the product right, consistent we couldn't get it over in time so we took a bit of a break but actually having that show booked in which is kind of where all the money went at the beginning because these trade shows are so expensive um but yeah it was working out what we wanted to spend it on and that was like our really big purchase at the beginning it sounds like as an interesting strategy you followed both in terms of the decision you made to quit your job and then this decision to book the trade show is that you forced yourself to make things happen by financially committing yeah and I think it's also what I've also kind of learned when I have an idea now about a new product I tell all my friends and I tell all my family because if I don't I'm kind of like oh maybe it won't happen maybe whereas if I've told lots of people I will really commit to it and I will execute it but before that it kind of just lives in my head um so we're working on some new product development at the moment and I've told all my friends like this is what we're coming out with and so every time they see me they'll be like oh where is it where is it it's like oh it's coming I'm working on it which means yeah I said it out loud so it has to it has to happen now I do exactly the same thing as you actually I find it just makes me do it yeah great strategy okay so you so you you raided your piggy bank you spent all your own money you got product out there you did the trade show so what at what point did you think actually we're going to need to take on some external funding now yeah so we kind of decided to do that towards the end of 2019 when we'd had some traction we'd won some cool awards we'd been in some great competitions we actually had retailers we had wholesalers uh we had people selling our product and buying it again um so that's when we thought actually in order to produce more, more product we needed more money um so we needed that money for marketing for sales and i think that's pretty much where all money goes when you're raising a startup. I don't really know where else it would go. Um, yeah, so it was towards the end of 2019 uh, when we kind of thought, oh, like now we need to raise some money. We need to start thinking about it. 
Okay, and interesting timing, because how were you to know what was going to happen just a few short months later? Um, I mean, when you decided to, to go out for funding, did you look at sort of the different ways that you could raise the money and uh, what did you decide to do in terms of your strategy? Yeah. So again, I would say we didn't really have a strategy. Um, it was very much, this was my first time fundraising. Ash knew a bit about um, kind of raising money, but he used to work in the private equity transaction services arm of KPMG. So he was familiar with like huge, huge, huge deals. So it was like making the financial model that was really, really helpful, but neither of us had gone out to kind of get seed funding really for a startup before. Um, and we spoke to loads of different people. I did the Albright pitch day, which was really, really great. And, um, we like met people through there who we had conversations with, but more, I think that was about practicing my pitch. And at the beginning, what I don't think I realized I was doing was practicing my pitch on loads of people that I guess I didn't necessarily like feel wedded to, to raise money from, but just honing my pitch so that later when we were speaking to people who I was like it'd be super awesome to have them on board um my pitch was actually perfected so that again I think in hindsight it wasn't a strategy it's just kind of what happened um but yeah we did like a we spoke to like friends family but really we knew we had to find like a couple of angels um we spoke to some VCs and we actually did get some offers from some uh which then kind of slightly changed after COVID happened but I think for us at that stage, it wasn't right to take VC money anyway, um, especially with kind of the reporting, et cetera, that goes with it. Um, yeah, it didn't feel right at that time. So yeah, I would say a little bit of a strategy, but not massively. <laughs> you sort of developed your strategy as you learned from the conversations you'd had. But um, I mean, it's interesting just hearing you say that about VCs, because I would have thought that it would have been a bit early for you to go for VC funding. Well, I mean, tell me more about why you felt it wasn't quite right for you at that time. Yeah, so I just kind of felt um, it ended up being a little bit more of a dilution. It was some, these people were actually saying, well, what is your valuation, et cetera. Whereas when we were speaking to angels, they were really buying into the idea of the product. The valuation was just an afterthought. It was like, oh yeah, okay, that kind of seems fine. Whereas these are like, well, actually I think it should be lower. And it, it just felt too much at that stage. And it also felt kind of with VCs, um, it wasn't the right moment because it seemed like they wanted 10, 15% of a business, like regardless of the valuation, that was kind of what they wanted. And it was, it was hard to kind of marry the two up. And I think at some stage we'll probably will graduate to, to a VC, but at, at the seed round, it wasn't appropriate for us. Did you think about crowdfunding at all? Um, we did. And I, I kind of quickly put it aside. And I think it's because um, I think I kind of view crowdfunding rightly or wrongly as, as a marketing tool. Um, and for us, I think we wanted all the money that we raised. Like I didn't really want a portion of it to kind of go um, towards marketing costs. And also we weren't super well known. We're not super well known. So there was a lot of work kind of, that went into it and fundraising is so time consuming anyway I love working on my business that's the bit I really like I would say I don't love fundraising because it is just such a time drain um and crowdfunding felt like it was going to be even more at that stage which didn't quite feel right yeah I mean it's it certainly can be a time drain especially if you're doing it for the first time and you've you know sort of finding your way as you go 
I mean, it, you know, the, the, some of the things you say are really common, I think. People sort of speaking to lots of people that might not be quite the right fit can, can end up taking a lot of your time, can't it? Yeah, and how I view it now is like, actually, I'm kind of glad that happened because I learned so much about how how I wanted to portray the business. Actually, being able to concisely to say to someone our story, our vision, our mission, um, I just kind of view it as practice. I'm sort of glad that we went through that. But when I look back at it now, I've learned so much about who actually were the right people to speak to. Um, you I kind of think now you can sort of, once you've gone through it, tell if someone's not serious near the beginning, sort of by the questions they're asking. Um, yeah. There's a, there's a skill that you develop, isn't there, around um, identifying those people who are time wasters versus people who would potentially, you know, really good investors for you. There's some, some skills that you learn around that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. So you went into your fundraise and, and, the pandemic hit how did that did that change the way you approached your fundraise did that shift yeah completely we actually had an offer for the full amount we were going out to raise um and it just kept getting dragged out um because oh there was the pandemic oh we're deploying the cash elsewhere we haven't raised the full fund this was when it was working with the vc um and then actually got to the point where like we needed the money uh, we, we couldn't really keep waiting. So there was a small amount that we had committed from other people that were that were not part of the VC, the VC offer. So we actually just brought that in as part of a rolling close, partly because we just had no money. We needed it to pay our bills at that point. Um, because it was meant to be closed at the end of March. We'd signed all the documents, everything. But the date just kept shifting. And then this dragged on till kind of summer. And then it was sort of like, actually we need to draw a line under this. Um, we're going to speak to other people if that that money doesn't land in the bank. Um, so basically sort of started again, really, from scratch. Um, and I think this time we were really, really conscious of what we wanted, what we didn't. The other major thing was, and I think everyone was thinking at that time, literally take as much money as you can, just increase your runway massively. So we set out to raise... Um, the SEIS amount, which I think pretty much everyone does for their first raise. Um, and then we thought, actually, can we double it? Because I don't want to be doing this again in a year. This is such a time drain. I just want to work on my business. Uh, I want to work on plant pops. I don't want to be doing all these calls in a year again. So actually, let's raise a bit more now. Um, and it was a decision because we'd already kind of put a stake on the valuation. So we probably were diluting ourselves more than we wanted to, but it it feels like the right choice to give us a bit of breathing room and some time. I and mean, it's it's such a personal choice, isn't it? And I think there's no right on there's no right or wrong. You'll never really know if you made the right decision. But no, it's, it's interesting. There's been quite a shift, I think, in recent times to people doing smaller raises more often, rolling closes, as you mentioned, where you're sort of constantly raising, which is there's a benefit to that in that you can then maybe sell less equity because as you move on, you know, you're constantly improving your valuation, but the downside is that you're constantly raising money. So, and that can be really time consuming. <laughs> so it's, you know, and I think that it's something also that gets leveled at female founders a lot. I'm sure you're aware of this, that, that we don't raise as much money as the guys. And I think sometimes that's a good thing. We don't want to be saturated with cash and we don't need it. 
but um, I, I'm glad you decided to end up raising more, especially to see you through, you know, what all the challenges you're going to face right now. Yeah, definitely. And especially because our business is so cash intensive, it is just massively huge upfront costs for every run. So yeah, it felt nice not to have to hopefully worry about cash flow because that money had been raised. And yeah, it will be earned back, but it's it's a cash flow thing um, for us. But it's I mean it's hard, isn't it, to get to get to make these decisions and to figure out you know, what's the right valuation at the right time. Again, no right answer. And whatever whatever the valuation is that you raise at, somebody out there will say to you, oh, you could have got a higher valuation or someone will say, oh, that was a very, you know, top heavy valuation. There's no right and wrong. If you've got a valuation, you've got a valuation. Yeah. And I think if you have a valuation that people are comfortable investing in, then actually that's your valuation because that's the market determining that it's appropriate. So, so how did you find the angels that you got on board? Yeah, so um, we met them all in really, really different ways. So we met one through a competition that we did. Um, He was actually introduced to us by uh, one of Ash's colleagues, friends to talk to him about grants. We never kind of pitched to him as such. We wanted his advice because he's raised a lot of money through grants and we thought maybe it's something we could tap into. I don't really think it was quite appropriate for us, but... Yeah, and then it kind of just got chatting. I think he felt interested in the the brand, et cetera. And then kind of we felt comfortable asking, would you want to be part of our journey? Um, I have I hate to say it, but some of them do come through warm intros, which I think is, um, yeah, I, I'm not a huge fan of warm intros. Um, I think they're a huge moat around fundraising. Um, I think it's it makes it slightly exclusionary. And then I think the flip side is people say, well, if you're kind of determined enough to get a warm intro, that's kind of showing to, to someone that you're you're like someone to back, et cetera. But yeah, so warm intros, um, I think for, for one of the angels that we raised from who like, was so excited to have on board, he's amazing, such a support through the process. Um, I messaged him on Instagram. So, 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 you know, it's, it's a, it's a real, real mixed bag, to be honest. Um, and quite often it was people who we didn't necessarily set out to raise from. It's people who had kind of followed our journey and I had reached out to for advice to say, Oh, we've, we've received this. What do you think? Never going into it thinking I want them to invest or I'm going to ask them. It was just up, tapping into them for advice. Um, and they kind of just turned around and said, well, we'll back you like we'll put some money in and actually that was a really nice feeling um because it's such validation isn't it yeah but there's some great points you raised there actually around I mean I love this discussion around warm intros so the fact that, that you know we built relationships with these people and they know they knew and trusted you meant that they were they were much easier um much easier to kind of get those kind of people on board as investors than people who don't know you so that's I think the first point but this thing about warm intros yeah I can totally see both sides of it you know for professional investors who just get so many approaches it's really hard for them to cut through all that noise and identify the ones that might be great opportunities to invest in so it kind of makes sense that people who get recommended to them through their network are going to get looked at first you, you kind of it, it makes sense but it's yeah. very frustrating for the founder but I think we have to work with that well how you know how investors want to be connected with and if you 
believe in your business enough, which you clearly do, and you're out there sort of networking and hustling, you you will be able to find a way to get to those people. And, and that's exactly it. So I actually reached out to someone I went to school with who um, had worked in the VC space for a couple of years, not for kind of warm interest, just literally, will you have a look at my pitch deck? Like I, I've never done a pitch deck before. I built it off of something I read on the internet and she helped me a lot through the process, coached me a lot on how to pitch, how to approach and yeah, I think it is reaching out to people, I guess, in your network. Um, but I get messages on LinkedIn all the time from people asking for advice and I I always respond. So I think people are really happy to help if you ask them, if you frame it in, in the right way, um, even if you don't know them personally. That's right. It's about helping support through this stuff is so important because if you've never raised investment before, how on earth would you know how to do this stuff? And I'm glad that you had those people that you could call upon to support you. Um, you know, and obviously at Enter the Arena, that's what we do is, is do that kind of coaching and advice and supporting female founders through the process. Not everybody's lucky enough to have those kind of friends who can help. Yeah. But I think without it, you're kind of flying blind. Completely. I think it is so important to get that advice. I just think without it, you're also going in slightly under-equipped um it's kind of not an even playing field and I think it's about shifting mindset as well so initially I was kind of when I was raising investment it kind of felt very much like I was getting cap in hand asking for money and then I think something really shifted in the middle of last year where I was like actually I want them to come along on this awesome ride like this is SEIS EIS eligible like we want them to join in, like come join our journey. And actually we're offering people a chance to join. So it was a mindset shift from I'm asking for money to actually look what we have to offer. And that that really helped me. Yeah, that, that's so important. And it's actually, I mean, again, it's, you know, I hate to sort of really generalize from a gender perspective, but I think certainly asking for money is something that a lot of female founders feel a bit uncomfortable about. And we have to be able to shift that mindset because as you say, like if you've got a great business, which is going places, why on earth wouldn't you want to offer people, you know, the opportunity to join the journey? Yeah, it's people we know, but also I would say some of our investors, they love startups. They love the journey. Like I have monthly calls with some of them and it's just like, it's so refreshing because they're kind of saying, oh, well, like, what what have you learned what can you tell us about what's happened this month and I absolutely love it like I really look forward to it because yeah it's to show we have to showcase and demonstrate growth but they're on the journey with us like they love it like they've learned about packaging about crunchiness like it's it's awesome to kind of have them on board as well I'm great that, it's great to hear that your your investors are being so supportive how many how many angel investors did you end up bringing into the round the majority of the round came from four okay that's a nice yeah. number that's not too yeah. many and I think that that you know those sort of metrics again I would I would advise founders to think about that because you know raising 300,000 pounds from four ish investors that's a, that's about right you know if you've got 20 investors putting in lots of small amounts directly into your business that can be quite tricky to manage yeah I would say we do we obviously have a high number than four because some people did put in lots of smaller amounts um but yeah it's kind of for make up the round but we send out kind of an update to everyone and it's very casual and I think 
yeah it's kind of hey guys this is what we did this month (laughs) and if they can be there to support you with you know skills and expertise and open doors for you then so much more than money if you get it if you get it right I mean that's half the challenge isn't it is finding the really good fit yeah yeah and I think it's also about finding someone that you're not scared to go to when you have a problem um because I can imagine like if I had a problem I'm really happy to say look like this has happened what would you advise but if you don't have that relationship I imagine it's very very hard um, to kind of be scared of what's going to happen I've seen it go wrong many times where the fit isn't good or it seems like it's going to be good and then it all goes wrong you know angel investors that can be a bit more meddlesome or unhelpful or just really unavailable (laughs) you know so it sounds like you've done a great job on that front um I mean just just moving on a little bit to talk about um being a female founder it's interesting because obviously you've got a co-founder who's uh, a guy so you might have seen both sides of the coin I guess but how do you think we can get more female found female founded businesses out there raising investment to scale if they if they need the money yeah I, I do think from I've spoken to loads of female founders um across lots of different industries whether it's kind of software where the cash flow is a bit easier or there is a product where it's a bit harder um I think there is a general reticence and I kind of felt it as well until we were literally out of money and we had to raise um to raise money it's kind of like well how much can we do like just with what we have and actually at some point you need the money to grow to take it to the next level otherwise it's kind of like you're always at the same speed and it's, I think it, particularly with the product business, it's really hard because you just can't buy more to sell more, really, unless without taking a loan, et cetera. And maybe those are avenues that I think female founders go towards first because there is this perception around raising investment, et cetera. Um, I don't really know except to make it um, easier to have those conversations with investors and then once you have that conversation, it's kind of up to you to demonstrate you're the right person. That's then that's just up to you. But I think up to that point, it's about getting to that conversation stage. Do you think it's because it's perceived as being a kind of a, a scary process or a time consuming process or what is, what is it that put in your view puts female founders, you know, makes them put this to the back of the list of things they want to do? Maybe people don't think they're ready. I didn't think we were ready. And I think it was a matter of Ash saying, no, like we are, like this is what we need to go for. This is what the valuation needs to be. I was naturally inclined to be like, oh, I think it's too high. Or are you sure, et cetera. But um, I think it depends on on the woman as well. Obviously, I very much kind of like worry about things. I think about things a lot, um, even if it's just something that can be done really easily. I'll really agonize over it. And um, I think, yeah, it's about kind of, I guess, saying, look, this is what I think my business is worth. You can join on the journey at this percentage. This is how much we're raising. And that's, I think, a really scary thing to do. And it's really scary to do like pitch days and put yourself out there. Like I find them absolutely nerve wracking. Um, It does get easier for sure. Um, So I guess it's just about making it as open to participate as possible at the beginning. I don't think... I think there comes a point at which it's literally up to the business, to the people pitching, to the actual product market fit, the idea. But I think all the stages up till there 
I think there are definitely barriers that could be broken down. Um, it's something that, I mean, a point you just made there about, you know, we want to feel like we're really ready. And I think there's two sides to that. There's feeling that our business is ready, but also that we're ready. And as, as women, we want to be 100% ready before we do anything, whereas the guys will kind of get to 50% and kind of go, yeah, that'll do. <laughs> you know, and sometimes that, that, that can hold us back, that need for, for being, having absolutely everything. But also, I mean, you know, it's, it's, we have to develop our skills and our confidence to be able to get there. So it's about investing in our own skills, I think, as, as female founders, you know, because, and, I, and you'll do this, you know, it's very rare that you raise investment once, you'll be raising investment probably a number of times on that journey. So you've got to get good at it, you know? Yeah, it's kind of like once you've done it once, you're in it. Like, you just have to keep going. And I think that's the other thing as well um, that maybe people are wary of. And actually, rightfully so, like, if that's not the vibe for you, there's yeah. no need to do that if that's not right for your business. Um, but for us, it got to a point where we just needed the money to be able to sell more because it was just, yeah, that's what we needed it for, basically. Yeah. I mean, to have impact in your market, you need some rocket fuel, don't you? To get yeah. to be working with the big retailers to get your product. A, a lot of it is about brand awareness. That doesn't yeah. for free. Particularly in FMCG, which is so competitive. Um, yeah, that marketing spend is needed to cut through for sure. But like you say, not not everybody needs to raise investment, so it isn't the be all and end all. But if you do, you've got to get out there and just go for it. Yeah, and actually got to a point where like I just didn't care what people thought of me. Like <laughs> I messaged people, um, and I think that 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 is just something that happens. Um, you just kind of don't care what people think because actually. I love my brand. I love the products and I don't, I want to share it with as many people as possible. And like, what's the worst that's going to happen? Someone's not going to respond. Whereas before I'd be like, oh, what if they read it? What if it's really awkward? What if it's embarrassing? Actually, it got to the point where like, oh, if they don't respond, whatever, they weren't right anyway. Like, let's continue. That's amazing. Your inner confidence really shines. It's wonderful to see. Oh, thank you. It definitely developed through the process because <laughs> at the beginning I was like, oh God, I just don't want to do this. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so brilliant stuff. Well, well, well done for raising the money. It's a real achievement. Um, and hopefully it will enable you to do so many exciting things with the business. So what are you focusing on next? What can we see coming up from Plant Pots? Yeah, so uh, we have a couple of new products that we're currently working on, super excited for. They're just going through kind of the later stage trials and shelf life and all that jazz. Um, we're working on growing our distribution as well, both within the UK, but also um, to some new export markets. So hopefully you'll see us in more places um, and you'll get to try the products. And if you do, let me know what you think. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I haven't tried them yet, so I really... In fact, I think I might have tried them when you pitched at the Albright because you did bring some samples along. Yeah, we did sampling. And it, uh, that was actually quite fun because because we have a product, we are able to, able to do that. I can see it, it is harder um, if it's, yeah, yeah so a if different you kind of actually way. try it there and then it's, you got them hooked, haven't you? That's the thing. Yeah. <laughs> so that's fantastic. Well, I can't, I'm going to have to go out and buy some now. I'll have to go and get some for my kids for movie night this weekend. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us, Anishi. It's um, really helpful for other female founders to listen to, to you know, your learnings and also for people in the investment community to get an, an insight as to what us female founders go through when we're, we're raising investments. So really, really helpful. Thank you. And I wish you all the best.
Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Julia. Thanks for following Fundraising Stories with Female Founders. This content is all provided to you for free. So if you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe so you never miss another one. Enter the Arena has helped hundreds of female founders fly through pre-raise and investment and onto the exponential growth of their business. Our first-hand experience, expert guidance and proven programs help female founders unleash the Wonder Woman inside. To see if we can help you do the same, head over to www.entertheArena.co.uk. I'm Julia Elliott-Brown and I look forward to talking with you soon.